When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the documentary on one. This is a documentary about a tragedy that befell Beirut in Lebanon in the summer of 2020. At times it makes for distressing listening. The events are seen through the eyes of an Irish man living in the city at the time, Colin Sheridan. This is the documentary on one, 6.08pm, Beirut. This is the port of Beirut, the capital of Lebanon. In 2013, a cargo ship limped in here carrying almost 3,000 tonnes of fertiliser pellets. The authorities deemed the ship unseaworthy and refused to let it leave the harbour. The ship's owners then abandoned the ship and its crew. The cargo of fertiliser pellets was confiscated on the orders of a judge and stored in a building at the port known as Warehouse 12. Eventually, the neglected ship sank in the harbour in 2018. The pellets still remained in Warehouse 12 and everyone forgot about them, except for a few port officials who regularly wrote about them to the judiciary and the government. Those officials warned that the fertiliser chemical is a component of explosives and that the 3,000 tonnes of pellets were improperly stored and could blow up at any time. Such an explosion in the port of Beirut would be catastrophic. That's because the port is not out in some remote industrial area, but right in the heart of the city. For example, just 800 metres away is this place, the district of Jamezi. And Jamezi is where Irishman Colin Sheridan lived with his family for two years up until the summer of 2020. Here in Jamezi, you'd have an awful lot of you know, coffee shops, art galleries, an old French neighborhood, beautiful French architecture, high ceilings, beautiful windows. Even if you don't go into the shops, the shopkeepers often stand in their doorways and greet you as you pass. Thank you, Man, this shop is unbelievably good. I'm going to take some pictures if that's yeah, okay yeah, afterwards. But, uh... One of those shopkeepers is antiques dealer, Amer Jabali. Um, just for people, this is the most incredibly beautiful, I'm going to take pictures of it, antique shop. Yes. Which is everything from vinyl to books to clothes to trinkets to tote bags. What's your background? You're from Beirut or...? I was born in Baalbek. Baalbek. But I moved to the States in 79 and I lived there until 2006. So you were gone for most of the Civil War pretty Yes. Much. Why did you come back? I kind of like, you know, got tired from stress of the States, a lot of traveling, a lot of business, a lot of so partying. So you came back to Beirut to get away from stress? Exactly, yes. <laughs> because we have different kind of stress True. here. You know, True. here we have warmth. Here, your neighbors ask you to come for coffee in the morning, yep. they cook for you, you know, you have like emotions, you have like 
kind of humbleness. Yeah. Yeah. But the most important business on the street for Colin and his family was this one. It's called Alias. It's a cafe, restaurant and bookshop. When I was at university, I worked in a bookshop and it was honestly the best job I ever had. And it's run by a woman from Leash called Niamh Fleming-Farrell. Niamh first came to Beirut Um, to work as a journalist. So, yeah, when the, the chance came to open a bookshop of my own, it seemed like, great, I'll do this. I guess from the book side and the literary side, Beirut has that sense, like Dublin does, I think. Yeah, and I think sometimes people forget that Beirut has that sense because, you know, Beirut's international reputation has been so eclipsed over the years by its troubles, probably much like Ireland's was. Colin's two children were regulars in Alias. With the kids, it literally was pull the car up and get the kids out of the car and they would run into Neves and you could then go and park the car knowing that they were with people they knew. I mean, my kids terrorised the place. I'm sure a lot of the younger Lebanese students who were trying to get their work done in Alias or the journalists trying to get their work done were sometimes raising an eyebrow at a six- and a four-year-old running around. I'm just walking up the steps to my old apartment. Colin, his wife Orla, and the two children lived above Alias in a six-storey apartment building with 18 apartments in it. Kids were always giving out to me about having to climb the stairs every day. One of those apartments was home to a young college student named Gail. I'm from Jemaize, maybe, oh, and my mountain is Bukatit Ashut. She lived there with her aunt, uncle and cousin. I speak English, French and Arabic. Gail's apartment always had a shrine outside it. The sister of Amal were always bringing things when she, she go to new churches. She was always buying things and putting this there. So I'm just uh, standing here on the rooftop of the apartment building that I lived in in Beirut for two years with my family. From the roof of Colin's apartment building, you could look behind to wealthier, grander apartment buildings. There's this most beautiful scene of nearly tropical trees, orange trees. But then you have this magnificent 70-storey Art Deco apartment block. And you could look forward, between other apartment buildings, to the port. For my apartment, if you looked through the apartment across the street, which you could do, you could see, you know, the port and some of the silos and warehouses and the sea. Of course, Colin and everyone else living in his building had no idea that there, in the port, 800 metres away, was a ticking time bomb. Warehouse 12 where 3,000 tonnes of dangerously unstable fertiliser pellets were still being stored, left there despite the warnings of port officials. Curiously, what caused the pellets to be left in such a risky state so close to the city is connected to the reason Colin was in Beirut. Here's why. Lebanon had a civil war from the mid-70s until 1990. It ended with a peace process that was similar to the peace deal that was brokered in Northern Ireland. It was based on power sharing. But while in the North this involved a few political parties, in Lebanon it involved 18 different religious and political groups. 
The day-to-day -day government of Lebanon was shared out among those groups, each doing their own thing, and because of this and corruption, many parts of the country just didn't work properly. From electricity supplies to rubbish collection to health and safety, like, for example, the improper storage of chemicals in the port area. The peace deal that left the government of the country in such a mess also meant the continued involvement of the United Nations in the form of peacekeepers and truce observers. It was at an outpost near this village, the village of Dainatar, that the attack on the two Irish soldiers took place. As you know, the Irish Defence Forces have been operating a mission in South Lebanon since the late 1970s. When the soldiers failed to report by radio to battalion headquarters at Tibnin, a patrol was sent out to invest... Colin Sheridan is a commandant in the army and served in Lebanon in 2012. After that, he was sent to Afghanistan and then, in 2018, he was sent to Beirut to work in a UN office. A peacekeeping mission called UNSO, which is the UN Truce Supervision organization. Shortly after he got to Beirut, Colin's wife Orla moved out there with their two small children. She took a two-year leave of absence from her job as a third-level lecturer in Galway and had no idea what lay in store for them in Lebanon. Well, it was such a surprise. Everything was such a surprise. I didn't expect it to be anything like it was. You know, we made so many friends from different nationalities. We had such a good social life. The food scene was so good and bringing the kids skiing. You know, the kids got to do so much while we were over there. And Annie went to a nursery where she did two hours of English, two hours of Arabic every day. So I think that'll definitely stand to her. And they both just have such brilliant memories. The Lebanese people especially are, are very much, and it takes again a bit of getting used to, but they'll pick up your kids and they'll give them the cheek squeeze and that'll be just random people on the street. And now they'll also stop you to tell you that your kids aren't wearing enough clothes and they'll stop you to tell you that you're, you know, not keeping an eye on your kids. Orla and the children stayed in the apartment in Beirut until the summer of 2020 when they went back to Ireland. Then, in early August 2020, Colin got ready to return home too. It was a busy time for him. I was due to finish my deployment and move home on the Sunday, four or five days later. Orla and the kids had gone home a couple of weeks before. On the evening of Tuesday, August 4th, Colin made an arrangement with a colleague and friend from the UN office, Mick Nestor who's a very good Irish friend of mine working for the UN. We, maybe a couple of times a week, would go up to this beautiful church car park to play hurling. Hours later, Mick was to deliver to Colin the worst news of the day. Before he met Mick, Colin bumped into his neighbour, a Londoner named Nisha. She had set up a garden on the roof of the apartment building and needed help shifting large plant pots. Went up and we were just talking and whatever, doing stuff with plants. And then that was around six o'clock and we heard a sonic boom. It sounded like the boom of a fighter jet. I'd been in Afghanistan, so I had some idea of what that sounded like. The initial crack of it was so kind of loud, almost insidious or whatever, but it's, it, it hung there was no wave that came with it, so it was literally just the sound in the sky. So I stood up on a chair just to see because my vision was a little bit obscured. Could I see anything? 
He could see that there was smoke coming from the harbour, from Warehouse 12. I remember stepping off the seat and kind of saying to Nisha, that doesn't sound good. And I also kind of made maybe a joke about, you know, I wonder will I have to go back to work or whatever. And I remember her saying something back to me. I think she might have said something like, are you serious? Why, like, what do you think it is or something? And then I can remember hearing the second blast. And like moments or seconds after I heard it, then <clears throat> the wave ripped through the building. Like I never heard a sound like it, never heard a sound like it in my life. The next thing I remember, I don't remember getting blown back, but I got blown back maybe around 10 or 15 feet up against the wall. And I was lucky because if I was blown another way, I would have gone over the edge into the alleyway over lower wall, but I was blown back against the high wall. And I just remember kind of trying to get to my feet and just the dust of everything and all the soil from the plants being everywhere and glass obviously immediately being everywhere, but my ears just absolutely ringing. So I remember like getting back to my feet and being very unsteady and my eyes were seeing things in sepia or whatever that tint is and just kind of shouting Nisha's name and she thankfully immediately responded. She was just underneath glass and tables and chairs and plants and soil. She actually told me afterwards that she hit the ground after she heard the noise. She actually said that I told her to hit the ground. I don't remember saying that because I think I would have probably hit the ground myself. I do remember thinking, oh, shit. Like, I guess I kind of thought, um, it was like, I thought that there was something else about to happen, I guess, and that, okay, like, this is kind of when you die now. And I remember kind of thinking, what a stupid place to die because... It was the one place I always convinced everybody was so safe to come. And I know that's a kind of a stupid thought process to have in that moment, but I remember being up on the roof going, OK, they're going to hit again, or whatever it is is going to hit again. Although Colin believed that the explosion didn't sound like an air attack, he decided he and Nisha should get off the roof. On the way down the stairs, they stopped at her apartment. Every door was blown off its hinges, every shutter from the window was blown across the room. There was just glass everywhere, everything was turned upside down. And the way the apartments are set up is you literally are looking at the, there's like mirror apartments across the alleyway from you. And I remember seeing Sarah Dadouche, who would have been a friend of ours, and she lived across the alleyway and just screaming at her, obviously checking was she okay, but she was just screaming back at me. I mean, she was looking for her cat. At least 10 dead and dozens wounded as the Lebanese capital is rocked by a large explosion. The blast could be heard across the city and a large cloud could be seen in the port area of the city. Colin and Nisha left her apartment and headed down towards the street. But as we then started getting down the stairwell, we obviously were shouting into the other apartments and we got to one of our neighbours' apartments and I saw 
a couple of the older people and I just quickly checked in them with Nisha to see were they okay and like they were obviously screaming themselves and hysterical but for the most part as much as we could tell they weren't injured. They passed Colin's apartment but didn't go in. Further down the stairs they got to the apartment of the young English-speaking college student Gail who lived with her aunt, uncle and cousin. And they started screaming at us to come in because somebody was hurt and I just remember going into one of the living rooms or whatever and there was uh, this lady whom I didn't recognise but it was turns out it was a cousin and she was just just sort of like a table collapsed underneath her glass just everywhere um, her face was very very badly injured her eyeball was hanging out of its socket and she was like gurgling an awful lot of blood and she was so white I remember screaming at Gail who was the only person I knew in the apartment who could speak English screaming at her just to try and tell me what her name was, who she was, and just Gail just couldn't speak English. She had lost her ability to speak English in that moment. And you asked me if I was okay. This is Gail. And I couldn't find the word to tell you that Bushra is not okay and she needs help. The injured woman was her cousin, Bushra. When I saw Bushra's face, it was like, um, like a horror movie. She was like, all the blood was covering her face. I really thought that we have lost her. And she couldn't move. Like, Salma take, took to her hand and, like, she was dead. And I then ran to my apartment because I knew it had a first aid kit there. And I remember just actually stepping into my apartment. And same thing, my door was gone. And, like, not only was the door gone, but the frames were blown off the wall and the kitchen, which was nowhere near the front of the building, was literally just turned upside down. And then I had to go into the living room to look for the first aid kit. And I looked into one of the bedrooms and I remember seeing the mattress of the double bed was blown up off the bed against the wall. And uh, <clears throat> I remember even looking into the kids' rooms and their beds were still there. They were IKEA wooden beds. They were all broken up. Colin went back down with the first aid kit, but it was of no use. Bushra's wounds were impossible to dress. We were just trying to keep her awake and conscious with water. I, I, I didn't know whether that was the right thing to do or not, but not into her mouth, but just on her body to try and keep her conscious because I was afraid if she lost consciousness that something obviously worse would happen. People surprised themselves with their immediate responses to the blast. In Gail's case, despite what was going on around her, she was preoccupied with her college work. Literally everything was broken. I saw my laptop uh, with my books everywhere. Literally all I was thinking about was my exam the next day and I was crying like I have an exam, I should go. In Colin's case, while he was in coping mode, trying to help those around him, he shocked himself with how quickly he was to anger. The only English words that they managed to muster our neighbours were like they kept on shouting Israel and I remember kind of getting angry at them and I was like it's not Israel it's not Israel it's you know and I didn't know but I was just I guess trying to stop them shouting that as much as anything else. Bushra needed proper medical help but she was unable to walk and too large a person to carry so Colin went down onto the street for help. That was the first time he saw the wider effects of the blast. As you'd expect, all the things from a movie, like the, the water spraying out of drain pipes and just rubble. 
And let's uh, recap our breaking news this evening. There has been a huge explosion in the Lebanese capital, Beirut. It shattered windows over a large area. Many people thought there'd been an earthquake. In fact, government officials are saying a very high number of people have been injured, and it's feared there'll be a high death toll as well. And the latest uh, casualty reports just coming into us here at BBC News say that uh, there could be several hundred people who have been injured and who've been taken to hospitals in the city. The head of the Lebanese Red Cross. Just even as I stepped on the street, I just never forget the kind of scenes from Oma that I saw on TV when I was like a teenager after the bombing and had just had that and it just seemed to be multiplied by, because it was every direction. People running in all different directions, almost all of them covered in blood. And so many people with their like tops, t-shirts off, men especially, I guess, to cover their own wounds or wound, like cover their kids from glass, I suppose. <coughs> And um, I, just, I guess all the things you kind of expect, like the dust and um, just stuff literally falling still from buildings. Then he spotted Alias, the bookshop cafe run by Irishwoman Neve Fleming Farrell. The doors, just the windows just blown out and like the iron signs and everything just hanging off. Hello again, this is the news hour from Al Jazeera. There's been a large explosion in Lebanon's capital, Beirut. Let's show you some latest pictures. Here we have Alia's bookstore, really a fixture of, of the town for, for journalists, for book lovers, just entirely totaled, ripped to shreds. Oh, and then I met Neve and Michelle Kluwer, and they were in a very bad way. Michelle was screaming at me that Neve was badly hurt. I don't remember hearing the second blast. I don't remember, like, I think I hear a lot of people describe seeing like the world kind of coming at them, like windows and debris. I don't remember any of that. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I don't remember. I didn't know that I was unconscious um, until much later. I remember walking out the door and then I remember being on my feet with Michelle, walking up Jamaica Street. I remember the glass underneath the feet. I remember running into you. I remember knowing that my arms were scratched and... I remember I, I, like, I knew that something had happened. And what I was thinking in my head was like, oh, wow, like, this, is, this has happened. Like, people have always talked about there being airstrikes and bombs and car bombs and the risk and the possibility. And you, you just assume that it's not gonna happen. it won't. The odds are on your side and it's not going to happen. And, yeah, and that was in my head. I was like, wow, it's, it's happened. It's happening. And I remember checking Neve and I again could feel that she wasn't bleeding from anywhere so and again nearly getting angry at Michelle <laughs> like this is probably doesn't paint me in the best light but like tell you know trying to tell her that to calm down to get off the street I mean as far as I was concerned I was it was physically grand and probably would have told you at the time that I was mentally grand as well but Colin said checked if we were okay and then said I have to go someone upstairs needs help and there's somebody bleeding upstairs. Just then, Colin's thoughts were jerked back to Ireland. Mo was another neighbour. He was just sitting on a car and he started screaming at me about my kids. Where were they? He had obviously forgotten that they weren't there or something, but um, I remember getting this awful moment of panic. 
Somehow I had my phone on me and I just pulled it out while I was on the street and I managed to talk to Orla really, really quickly on a WhatsApp call. And she answered, thank God. And yeah, I remember her answering the phone like she normally would as in like, hey, what's up? Myself and my sister-in-law and my mother and her mother had gone to Foxford Roller Mills for a coffee and I could see the column was um, trying to call me and often, you know, I'd just ring him back but I said I'd answer it and I knew straight away because usually Colin plays everything down but I could tell, you know, by your voice that there was something serious up and, um, yeah... He was just informing me of what had just happened, but I was trying to keep... Sorry. I'm okay, Oda. I'm okay, I swear. Obviously saying to her that, listen, something had happened. I can't get Alice. I've tried to recall Alice and Jacob, so try and call them, because it was down there under the street. I was trying to get you to stay on the phone because I wanted to get as much information as I could and I think at that point we thought that it was a terrorist attack and for some reason I said to her I don't think anything else is going to happen whatever happened is over whatever happens it is, is over okay and obviously I didn't know that because I still hadn't a clue what it was anyway maybe I just felt it was the right thing to say to her I think I might have said to her you'll see that I'm online but I'm trying to call everybody else so you know I'm okay I tried to call your parents, I tried to call your mum, which we found out that she was watching the news. Hospital ...and the hospital is appealing for blood donations. Let's get this report now from our correspondent, James Robbins. A massive explosion sent shockwaves tearing through the Lebanese capital. What? The blast happened in the port area. Looks as if the first explosion was followed by another, much larger one, which swept through many nearby buildings. In Beirut, Colin was still on the street when he heard screaming coming from a neighbouring apartment block. Screaming, screaming, screaming. And I just assumed that somebody was very badly hurt and I would have known them to see just from going down the stairs and there was two domestic workers, like Ethiopian or Eritrean girls working there and an older Lebanese couple, and I remember just eventually managing to get up the stairs because the stairs had partially collapsed, and getting into the high-ceiling living room of this apartment, and just this young African girl, domestic worker, and she was just screaming, 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 and again, I couldn't get her to stop, and I think I only wanted her to stop for me, I don't know, but I was obviously trying to calm her down, and she was in complete shock, and... I went and checked the other maid and she showed me where the madame and monsieur were, uh, as they called them, and they were like a very elderly couple and they were just sitting like on plastic chairs in the kitchen, covered in blood, but fine. I could see that it was just like superficial injuries and they were pressing stuff against themselves. Colin then left that apartment to head back to get help for Bushra in his own apartment building. Um, so eventually I just went down again and literally started screaming at people that somebody was dying and two, one guy I knew uh, from the pizzeria who was badly, well, no, he was injured, he wasn't badly injured, but he, he came up and a guy, uh, another guy that I never saw, uh, again, obviously came up. 
He pulled a mattress from another apartment and put Bushra on it and managed to manoeuvre her down the stairs onto the street. It doesn't sound good, but I remember the only reason we could actually slide her was because of the glass and the blood underneath her. The other two men then ran off. I remember Nisha running down and tried to get somebody and every time she'd get somebody that was coming to help, they'd obviously get intercepted on the way by somebody who was worse. Two Red Cross medics came up and examined Bushra and said that she needed to go to hospital straight away. They were like, no ambulance is going to come down here. So I remember looking across at my car and it had been coke canned in that the roof had collapsed and the windows were all blown in. It was a white UN, like, Pajero Jeep. And um, so I ran up and I got the keys and I came down and I remember kind of half thinking as I turned the key, like, don't start because if it, as in, if, if the engine starts, then, I don't know, I kind of felt weirdly if the engine starts, then I'm now responsible for getting her where she needs to go, which I obviously wanted to do. Um, I don't know why I thought that, but I was like, maybe I thought there's no way this engine is going to start. And I remember it, it started. And I was like, okay, and got out of the car again. The decision was made, and I remember we couldn't, we couldn't get her into the back seat, so I had to collapse the seats, get her into the boot. And she was like in a bad way. She was like losing consciousness, and she was like gurgling blood, and she was vomiting, and... Her aunt, Celine, was just going crazy screaming and I was trying to calm her down and she wouldn't get off the phone. And Anyway, we just had got her in and I had just, like, I was sitting in, I'm six foot five, so my neck was, I was looking at, like, my neck was on top of the steering wheel because of the roof being collapsed and on top of me. And <clears throat> I had just literally, we had managed to pull out and out of nowhere then, these two men and a woman came with an old man in a plastic chair, a garden chair, and he was covered in blood from his chest and his head and they just opened the door and they just plonked him in without, well, they were screaming. I didn't know what they were saying to me. And they just left him there and they, and they ran off, obviously probably going back into the building to help somebody else. And uh, this guy was barely conscious, if at all, and he was sitting on nothing but glass. And um, I was like, okay. And so I was trying to ask Salim, where would we go? I knew where some of the hospitals were, but I was just trying to, see what she thought but she couldn't understand me she couldn't talk to me so eventually we got inching forward in the mess and the chaos and the woman who was initially one of the people who dropped the old man in came back and was shouting at me like to get moving and I was like where the hell can I go as in like I couldn't like there was there was cars there was people there was buildings on the street and she hopped into the car she couldn't open the door so she swung herself into the back and she sat if you know what I mean like on the, the windows were smashed out, so she sat on the rim of the window with her body outside the car, and she just started screaming at everybody. And unbelievably, people, although so, like everyone was in the same boat, she was obviously screaming that this was more serious than the person in front or behind us, and they started moving cars for us and pushing cars for us, and we eventually got moving through the debris and the chaos, and I just remember, like, driving the way that you think a stunt guy would drive in a movie and thinking, is this actually happening? Because it's like I had to smash into cars to get them out of the way, like stationary cars, and drive over high curbs and you could hear the bottom of the car just ripping. They tried to get to the nearest hospital but couldn't get close to it because of traffic and streets blocked with fallen buildings. And I remember just seeing shards of glass fall from these Art Deco buildings, like fall stories onto the ground and smashed in front of us. Seeing just people just literally sitting at the side of the road in bloody dazes. 
The Lebanese Red Cross says hundreds of the injured have been taken to the city's hospitals for treatment amid fears that many more people are trapped under damaged buildings. Local television quoted Lebanon's director of customs as saying that tons of nitrate kept at the port was thought to have been the cause of the explosion. This evening, Lebanon... Hospitals are said to be overwhelmed by casualties. Some reports talking of as many as 500 people being injured. Firefighters are tackling numerous blazes. The route to the next hospital was blocked. Meanwhile, Colin had the elderly man beside him in the passenger seat unconscious. I just kept on tipping water onto him. I don't know why I thought this was like maybe the magic sponge playing Gaelic football or something, but he was just trying to give him, you know, something that would actually keep him awake. And I couldn't tell whether he was or he wasn't. Um, I remember checking his pulse at one point and he definitely had one. Then an ambulance came up behind Colin's car and started to overtake. And as the ambulance was passing us, they looked in the car and obviously saw the two injured people. So we followed the ambulance and they were driving like crazy so that was good because we were on their tail and got to this very small private hospital and I'll, I'll never forget they just it was like 9-11 I guess you know that idea of just like just it seemed like the hospital had nearly gone out on the street it was gurneys everywhere and but they brought us like right underneath and they just got the two people out and so Bushra they managed to get her in and Salim went with her the old man went in and the woman went with him and then I remember people just like hammering the car to tell me to get it the hell out of the way then. And I remember just like getting out of the hospital compound and then sitting there going, like, what the, what the hell am I going to do now? As in like, where do I go? Or, um, and I kind of couldn't go anywhere because the traffic was so bad. My phone had died at this point. He decided he should get back to his own apartment. So he left the car and headed back to Jamaisi. So eventually got back to the apartment and uh, that was the first time I got a proper look at it, I guess. I remember weirdly taking a video of it as I was going into it and um, you know whenever I look back at that video I could just hear myself cursing a lot in shock. Fuck. 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 It was then the realization of what might have been hit him. I remember the thing that kind of caught me the most was the fact that we have these lovely green shutters on our window and they literally had been blown from the street side the entire way across the living room to the far wall and had taken chunks out of the wall and I remember kind of having that thought then that well at six o'clock in the evening what would your kids be doing you know they'd be eating dinner or they'd be you know they wouldn't be in that room obviously and you know that was true for so many people who had people like hurt that's what got them was like glass and blind you know or, or shutters or projectiles just going across the room. Colin's next thought was work. He was an army officer with the Irish Defence Forces seconded to the United Nations. He would have to report what had happened to Irish Army headquarters in Dublin and to the UN headquarters in Jerusalem. He also decided to check in with his colleague in the Beirut office, Mick Nestor. Mick was the man Colin had planned to play hurling with that evening but he also had a role coordinating the safety and security of the staff in the office. I remember him, you know, I was asking, like, did he know how everybody from work was or had they any reports? And um, 
just even remember at that stage him telling me that, uh, <clears throat> so one of the, she was a co like a colleague in the sense that we both worked in the UN building, but you know, for different uh, organizations, her name was Sarah Copland, she was Australian, and her son Isaac was in Annie's nursery. So I'd meet her like at the door of the nursery, herself and her husband quite a bit, Craig, um, and I knew she was pregnant, but um, you know, at the odd time we'd walk the walk into from the nursery to work together, like just small talk, you know, compare notes on parenting in Beirut, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but I remember Mick telling me, <clears throat> obviously because this was his remit, because of the security side of things, he was like, I think one of the staff lost her kid. Uh, anyway, I just remember kind of saying it to him straight away. I don't know why I said it, but it was like, oh. And he was like, yeah, it's, un it's unconfirmed, but yeah. The child was two years old. And I think it was just because... Um, I think it was just because I knew the little kid from the school that, uh, and he was in, you know, he was in Annie's nursery, so I made, immediately made that connection or whatever. And uh, I had reached a point, I think, by that stage where I was like, there was, you know, there was so much adrenaline, then I was so happy to be safe and being able to talk to Orla and the kids. And then I remember him telling me that, like, and it just, you know, kind of brought on a whole different wave of, because I guess if our kids were there and that, the little boy was sitting in his high chair eating his dinner and he took his shard of glass in his chest and uh, kind of everything else after that kind of, uh, like about stuff and about shit being broken or even other people being injured. Lebanon is to observe three days of national mourning following the deaths of more than 100 people in two big explosions in the port area of the capital, Beirut. Many more are missing, believed trapped under rubble, and more than 4,000 people were injured in the explosions. And that was the other thing. I mean, they only recorded deaths of people, that, of bodies they found, and, you know, and like so many Syrian street kids, I don't know what accountancy there was for them because Jamezi would have been a very popular place for them to be because of begging and, you know, footfall and all that kind of stuff. The blasts were caused by thousands of tons of ammonium nitrate igniting at a warehouse. And President Michel Aoun has demanded to know why such a great quantity of dangerous chemical was stored close to the city centre for six years. But it was nuts just to be on the street and see within like 24 to 48 hours, thousands of people down on the street, all like obviously private citizens with their brushes and dustpans. And it's, I think, a pride thing. They knew there was going to be no state help. There wasn't. There was thousands of people there every single day. So many of them were injured, you know, again, you know, stitches, head wounds. They were down there helping, cleaning, everybody wearing masks in the sweltering heat. Despite being surrounded by such activity and despite having been able to offer help to others immediately after the blast, days afterwards, there was one thing that Colin could not do. I remember like just coming over every day and like being on the street and always getting to the point of my apartment and then either not being able to go in or going in and just sitting there and not being able to pack anything or touch anything or clean anything up. 
I think just shock because I was very happy to go into everybody else's apartment and help them. Just couldn't do it on my own. And then I remember one of the days, like trying to somehow secure the place because there was talk of looting. And I was just conscious that all our stuff was there. And then I came back the following day and sounds too good to be true, but the scouts had gone through buildings they found open and swept up all the glass. And they had cleaned like to me, like the place was unrecognizable to the day before and they did what I couldn't do in four days of trying. Never saw them, never knew who they were, but that was the kind of stuff that was going on. And then I, on top of all of that, I guess I had the thing about I was going home and, uh, and this is kind of where it gets a bit messy for me is because of course I wanted to go home and see Orla and the kids, but I didn't want to go. Felt very guilty. I felt uh, just guilty, I suppose, about not being hurt. It's a fairly obvious one, but then far more guilty about like leaving something, which you know I just hadn't arrived there. You know, it had been my home, and suddenly I was just like, and everybody I met was like, "Oh, you need to go. You need to go. Why would you stay? You need to go." And I remember being so angry at them for saying it because I was like, "I don't want to go." That obviously got tough when I got home because. I had that sense of relief of getting home, but the feeling of abandoning something as well, like really only amplified once I got home because I didn't want anybody to ask me about what happened and then nobody asked me what happened when I was angry. <laughs> so, yeah. It's nice to be back in an airport, be surrounded by people, albeit with masks. It's Dublin Airport in early July 2021. It's a lot busier than I thought it would be. There's a lot of young families around travelling. Colin is about to fly out to Lebanon. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited to, to get back there. I don't know how I'll feel when I'm, when I'm back there. He's going to see friends and also to get a sense of what happened last year and what's been happening since. Hey, Habib. Hello. How are you? He calls into local shops. You're doing good? Alhamdulillah. And you and your family? Everybody's okay. Everybody's okay. It's good to be back. The shop was badly damaged. Destroyed, I remember. I remember coming by the store like the next day and the days after. It was crazy. So crazy. When he arrives, he sees that Beirut, the place and the people, are in a bad way. Just standing outside a Medco uh, fueling station and there's a queue of around 40 cars trying to get into it. Um, there's police there. There was an economic crisis in the summer of 2020, but it's a catastrophe now. The currency has collapsed, which means it's almost impossible to buy basics, like fuel. That means regular power cuts. There's no street lights at night. I've absolutely banjacked my toes a few times because there's rubble everywhere and there literally is... You know, you can't walk on footpaths because it's either scaffolding or rubble. And so you're walking in the middle of the road or you're trying to hop across and you're not, because it's so dark, you're just literally walking into a bollard or you're walking into a hole and there's no traffic lights. Neve's bookshop, Alias, has been restored, but Neve says that's relatively insignificant given what's happening in the country generally. For most of the country, whether or not Jamezi is being rebuilt is not the top of the agenda, like a day-to-day -day survival. The fact that they're 
kids aren't getting any schooling, that they can't get the diabetes medication for their uncle. Like, this is much more pressing. I think that was also, I don't know if you had this, but by the time I realized that it wasn't an attack by an external power, I was furious. Like, I was like, I cannot believe this is a homegrown debacle. This was avoidable. I think I think it was really furious about it for a long time. Like, how could this have happened? You know, like, <laughs> Lebanon has enough challenges without someone landing this quantity of explosive in the middle of a residential area waiting for it to go off. Like, The people of Beirut, as well as coming out to clean up the streets with brushes and dustpans, also came out to protest against government corruption and inaction. We couldn't find a bottle of water, man. Yeah, for like two weeks nuts. here, you have to go out to get... Amer, the antique shop owner. Yeah, just like our politician and religious people. You know what I mean? Amer, like many Lebanese, believes the explosion happened because it was easier for those in power not to do anything about the explosives stored in the port. I mean, somebody did that. Someone did that on purpose. It was not as an accident. No way it was an accident. It was done on purpose. And everybody just like kind of hid away from the facts and just everybody just didn't say nothing about it. The disease of Lebanon is sectarianism. Lebanon is like three parts. You have Saudi Arabia, you have Iran, and you have the West. And these are like three enemies in one country. Finally, to the two people Colin brought to the hospital. He hasn't been able to find out anything about the elderly man. But Bushra, the woman who was manoeuvred down the stairs on a mattress, she survived and has moved to Germany. Thank God she, she is studying there, her uh, master's maybe or doctorate. Her cousin, Gail, the student. And uh, she is happy. You know, there it's safe. It's really good to hear. Um, when you go back to Jamezi, I mean, are you okay with going back to the place now? I feel okay, but still, I I I think what I know if something happened in the pool or maybe you know could this ever happen again? So I'm little scared now. Like you should be, you know, be a student and be able to have fun. And like, has it changed all of that experience for you? Yeah, it changed. I, I felt like no one is here for, for too long and we should have fun, we should see our friends, we should tell people that we love them. I felt like I should live, I should take care of the people around me and ask anyone if he's okay because I felt we can lose people very easily. The final official death toll from the explosion was 207. The inquiry into what happened has stalled and looks like it may never find out who was responsible for leaving the fertiliser pellets in the port. Meanwhile, the government is in crisis. There's a new Prime Minister, a billionaire businessman who was in government before. He's struggling to pick a cabinet. In Lebanon, like so many other places, the price of peace is paralysis. It's amazing being back after one year, like the amount of people in shops that you'd see every single day and maybe just say hello to and they've all, you know, kind of stopped me this week and all asked about the kids and like, where have you been? And 
more importantly, like, why are you back? Because they can't imagine why anybody would like to come back at the moment. It's, it's like the city is bleeding out in front of everybody. And it's been a year since the blast, and honestly, I, I don't know where it goes from here. The documentary on 1, 6.08pm Beirut, was narrated by Emer Horgan. It was produced by Colin Sheridan and Ronan Kelly. For more information, visit rte.ie slash doc on 1. And until the next time, thanks for listening.